Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. Peter, do you realize that if Trump goes his entire presidency without a pet, he'll be the first president in over a century who doesn't have a pet in the White House? Oh, interesting. The subject came up a few months back on one of his rallies. This one was in El Paso, and it came up at a time when he was speaking about how amazing the drug-detecting dogs are, and he was specifically referring to the drug-detecting German shepherds who sniff out the drugs being smuggled across the border. And then you hear the crowd cheer for these dogs, and Trump then goes on to say, you do love your dogs, don't you? The crowd will cheer for anything. I know. And then he goes on to say, I wouldn't mind having one, honestly, but I don't have any time. How would I look walking a dog on the White House lawn? A lot of people tell me I should get a dog because it looks good politically. And finally, he adds, it feels a little phony to me. Now, there were some false claims about Trump hating dogs. One source said Trump stated, quote, dogs are disgusting. And that was fact checked to be wrong. And then there was a claim that Quote, Trump abruptly shuts down dogs for wounded warriors program, leaving vets high and dry on Veterans Day. Yeah, unnamed sources. Right. And again, fact checked found that Trump didn't cut any canine program. Peter, it wouldn't surprise you if there was no first dog in this presidency, would it? No. no. I mean, why do presidents get dogs to show them off, right? And perhaps having a presidential dog shows a softer or lighter side to a president, and the public likes it, the media likes it. Well, the media are not going to like anything this president does. But, you know, Trump's Trump. Trump does things differently than D.C. has always done it. So wouldn't be a surprise to me either if there wasn't a dog during this term. You know, Trump could get Lassie and people would say, I hate Lassie. Exactly. But I'll tell you who is indeed a dog lover and an animal advocate, and that is Laura Trump. So Laura Trump is the president's daughter-in-law. She's married to Eric Trump. Isn't Eric Trump a big game hunter? Yeah. I know we talked about Donald Trump Jr. getting his thrills by shooting and killing our beautiful wild animals. But does Eric hunt also? Yeah, yeah, he does. Anyway, back to Laura Trump. She's married to Eric Trump. She's also President Trump's 2020 campaign senior advisor. Well, she's taking action and heading up a new campaign for the first government-wide crackdown on conditions at puppy mills. Like federal government-wide. Wow. Yeah. So just so we're all on the same page here, let me explain what puppy mills are. Puppy mills are inhumane, overcrowded commercial dog breeding facilities that sell puppies in pet stores, online, or directly to the public, including at flea markets and on classified ads or dog auctions. These are horrible, inherently cruel facilities. The dogs live in small, dirty, disgusting, disease and bacteria infested areas. The dogs are often malnourished and sick. They often go without water, medical care or space to walk around. They're usually living in their own feces. The female dogs are often bred over and over again until they can't breed anymore. And at which time they're usually killed because they're useless to the puppy mills. Puppy mills are a multi-million dollar industry that value profit over the health or well-being of the dogs. It is an inherently cruel business. Laura Trump recently wrote an op-ed making the argument that our country needs to crack down on these abusive puppy mills, breeders. I saw her speak with Tucker Carlson on Fox News last week discussing this campaign. She was explaining that a lot of people go out and buy a dog and they don't realize the dog comes from these horrible places. And she went on to say how we need to be treating these dogs better and our society demands it. And she's right. Compassionate dog loving society does demand it. And it's about time someone is doing something. 
Tucker asked Laura what can be done about this, and her response was that the Obama administration ignored this topic, and the USDA under the Trump administration is trying to raise the standards of these facilities. So the big story here is Laura Trump has joined forces with GOP lawmakers and animal advocates, Representative Matt Gates from Florida and Brian Mast, also from Florida, to crack down on loose regulations on horrible breeders. The three of them explain their initiative in a letter which reads, This is the least we can do to ensure that the dogs who produce America's next generation of pets, the loving animals that so many of us consider part of our families, are protected and have a life worth living at the very least. That's what they deserve. Dogs in commercial breeding operations deserve a decent quality of life, not just a clean bowl of water and an annual vet exam. They added they also deserve room to run, fresh air, and spacious, comfortable housing. But current rules under the Animal Welfare Act only require enough cage space for dogs and puppy mills to turn around and lie down. And the rules allow cages to be stacked one on top of another, which stresses animals and encourages overcrowding and reduces fresh airflow and prevents proper sanitation. What is needed is to double the required cage space so the dogs have room to move, not just turn around. And it should require ground-level, unstacked cages. In addition, USDA should ban once and for all the practice of keeping dogs on painful, gridded, or wire flooring that can hurt their feet. Laura Trump states, My hope is that we never have to call them puppy mills again. Hopefully by changing these rules, it weeds out the bad actors. Now, apparently, Laura Trump, Matt Gates, and Brian Mast supported other animal rights legislation in the past, such as calling for an end to controversial dog experiments at the Department of Veterans Affairs. In addition, these animal advocates, along with real estate mogul Blair Brandt, were instrumental in Florida's recent vote to phase out greyhound racing. So, Peter, this is really great news. And like I said, seems to be long overdue. And unless you're a breeder, unless you're one of these irresponsible and unethical people who profit from selling puppies with no concern for the well-being of the animals, then you should be applauding this campaign and what she's doing. Americans love dogs. 70% of U.S. households have pets. More than 72 million households own dogs. I also learned from the interview with Tucker Carlson that she's a dog rescuer and has been one most of her life. You can see online some of the videos Laura posted related to her own rescue dogs or shelter dogs. One video shows one of her rescue dogs stealing her little son's snacks. Another shows a video of her rescue dog, Ben. You know, these are the kinds of videos you and I might share with others. One of her Instagram posts, this was about nine months ago, show shelter dog cages from a nonprofit animal rescue organization. And it was designed to motivate her social media followers to, quote, clear the shelters, meaning promoting, adopting, and rescuing from an animal shelter or rescue group. Again, similar to a post you would see from any and many animal rescuers. And this should be a good thing, right? Get the word out, encouraging people to adopt and save a life versus buying from a breeder or a pet store. But of course, posting puppies in shelters and promoting rescuing and saving a life is not a good thing if your last name is Trump. These photos angered people who compared the photos she posted and dog shelter conditions to those of immigrants and their children held in cage-like conditions because of President Trump's policies. One person wrote, Laura, Laura, what about the hundreds of thousands incarcerated humans here in the U.S.? Someone else wrote, think about the kids separated from their families. Someone else commented, there are children in cages. 
I know I'm digressing and ranting here for a second because it's really a shame that we live in a day when everything is politicized and most media outlets are so biased. You know, animal welfare should not be a political issue. But for the fact that Laura Trump is related to our president, the left-leaning media would be covering the story and be covering it fairly. Anyway, I'm entitled to a little rant once in a while, right, Peter? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay, Lori, I thought this story would be sort of appropriate to follow yours, and it has to do with uh, legislation that's going to be introduced. It comes from Representatives Brendan Doyle, who's a Democrat from Pennsylvania, and Jackie Walorski, a Republican from Indiana. And they are trying to address this situation having to do with government-sponsored animal testing. And right now, what happens when these animals are done being tested upon, they basically get euthanized. Almost all of them do. Spurred on by efforts and uh, information from White Coat Waste Project, we really admire what they're doing there. They're a watchdog group that opposes government spending on animal experiments. This legislation aims to allow these tested animals to be adopted rather than euthanized. Yeah, that's really wonderful. This bill will be called the Animal Freedom from Testing, Experimentation, and Research Act after, A-F-T-E-R, after. Anyway, White Coat Waste is calling it Violet's Law, named after a rescued former lab dog who inspired this effort. And you know, right now, about 50,000 dogs, cats, primates, rabbits, and other regulated animals each year And, you know, that excludes the mice and the rats. 50,000 are tested upon and then all killed at the end of their service. Service. Oh, yeah, yeah. There are 10 federal agencies that experiment on such animals. And only one, the Department of Veterans Affairs, has a newly implemented uh, policy addressing this. Also, thanks to White Coat Waste. So, this is great news. Urge your Congress members to co-sponsor Violet's Law and give these animals a second chance. Okay, Lori, you like? I like. Okay. Thanks, Peter. Okay, don't go away. More with animals today right after the break. Every day in our community, countless animals are starved, beaten, and abused by people. And sadly, most of these cases go unreported and the abusers get away with it. And in many cases, someone knew about the abuse but did not report it. So if you see someone hurting an animal, or even if you just suspect something, call the police or animal control right away. Animal abuse does not just mean physically abusing an animal. Neglecting animals can be just as bad. So if you see your neighbor's dog being underfed, left without water, or tied up in the backyard without protection from the elements, it is important to report that too. In many cases, you don't even have to give your name, and your phone call may save an animal's life. Also, we know that many violent and abusive adults got their start by first abusing animals. It's true, people who harm animals often turn their violence against other people, and that is a cycle we need to break. Remember, animals can't speak out for themselves, so reporting animal abuse can save lives. This message is presented by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Visit them at www.aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. 
For the past quarter century, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. Its programs include reducing income taxes by allowing a deduction for spay and neuter expenses, preventing animals adopted from shelters from reproducing, and requiring the mandatory identification of dogs and cats to prevent dumping the unwanted. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.org. Welcome back to the show. Our next guest leads an organization that provides a needed service to our veterans as well as shelter dogs needing homes. I'm very pleased to welcome Clarissa Black. She is founder and executive director of Pets for Vets. Hey, Clarissa. Hi, thank you for having me. Clarissa, what is Pets for Vets and why did you start it? Pets for Vets is a national nonprofit that rescues and trains shelter dogs for returning veterans to help with things like post-traumatic stress disorder, traumatic brain injury, anxiety, and depression. And I started this in 2009. I was doing some therapy dog work with my dog, Bear, at a local VA. And after meeting the veterans and seeing how they interacted with my dog, I was thinking to myself, why is therapy one hour once a week inside the walls of the VA? Why can't I use my skills as an animal trainer to be able to find the right animal for each veteran, basically giving them a, a bear to each of them because of the connection that I have with my own dog? And so these win-win matches would then help with the 6.5 million animals that are entering shelters every year in the United States. And after 10 years, we've made over 350 matches and have 27 chapters across the country. That's fantastic. So let's hear how it operates. Like, who are the people? Where do they come from? Who are the dogs? And how exactly do you match them up? Yes. So we are working with veterans, and veterans can find us in a variety of ways. The social media, hearing things like this really helps our veterans to find us. But they can apply right online at our website, that's PetsForVets.com. And so when we get their application, we are a very uh, unique process in that we're really getting to know each one of our veterans. We're finding out what it is that they're looking for in a dog, what it is they want to do with their dog, their needs, their hopes, their expectations. And then we take all of that information, so it gives us sort of a, a profile who the human is, and then we go to shelters and rescue groups to rescue a dog, but we ask the dog similar questions. We just listen to them in a bit of a different way, but we ask the same questions to find out what the dog wants in their life so that when we match them, we create something that is unique to Pets for Vets, and that's the super bond. And the super bond is so strong that when our dogs and our veterans meet for the first time, it's that love at first sight, and our dogs will be so in tune to their veterans that sometimes they'll even offer behaviors beyond what we've trained them for, uh, such as waking the veterans up from nightmares. And so the super bond can really help with all kinds of things, um, like creating connections, uh, ice-breaking breakers to meet new people, can provide a sense of purpose. Our veterans now have someone that needs them, a reason to get up to uh, somebody that needs to be taken care of. It's just been incredible to see how this unconditional love has really changed the lives of some of our veterans. So do the veterans have medical diagnoses such as post-traumatic stress, anxiety, or depression? They can, yes. Um, so they don't necessarily have to have a medical diagnosis, um, but any condition that could benefit from having a companion animal, they can uh, apply to our organization. Many do have PTSD or anxiety, depression. And just to clarify, these dogs, they're rescue shelter dogs. They're not certified as service dogs, correct? 
Correct. So our animals are all rescued from shelters or other rescue groups, and we call them skilled social companions because mm-hmm. we do provide a lot of training for all of our animals, but they are not certified as service dogs. How do the veterans access your services, and why do they come to you when they might just go to a shelter? So veterans can find us online at uh, petsforvets.com, and it's easy to apply right there online. Um, I think many times our veterans are coming to us because of the unique way that we do our matching process, the super bond. It is so unique that we're really, it's not just, oh, that dog looks cute. Let me take him home. I know a lot of people, you know, they'll, they'll find a dog that looks cute when they get them home. Maybe there's some behaviors there that they don't know how to, to work with and maybe they need a trainer or it's just the animal wants something different than the lifestyle that that person has. What we're really doing is making sure that we're finding the right dog, that the dog wants exactly what it is that that veteran has to offer. And that's how we create the super bond, which is so unique to our program. I love what you're doing. Any final points my listeners ought to know? Yes, if uh, you're interested in learning more about the program, check out PetsForVets.com. We're always looking for volunteers and trainers. So if you're a dog trainer, please contact us. And we're you know, really excited about a um, partnership that we have with International Delight. And they wanted to express their appreciation for um, the military, which May is Military Appreciation Month. And they, were, uh, they gave us a big contribution to help us create these super bonds and to train more trainers across the country. Well, I think it's just wonderful. You're helping our veterans at the same time as getting so many of our sheltered animals into loving homes. Clarissa Black, thank you very much. Well, thank you so much. And thank you for helping us get the word out there and uh, to give us more coverage. You bet. Each year, hundreds of racehorses get injured while racing or training. If a horse gets injured or breaks down, it's more likely than not that he or she will end up being shipped off to slaughter. Many people refer to horse racing as a sport, but really it's only betting with animals. And as the horses get less competitive, they're worth more to the owners dead than alive. They are sold off and shipped in overcrowded trucks for hours on end, without water, to Canada or Mexico where they are slaughtered for food. That is the fate of most racehorses in the United States. While they are alive, they are subjected to overtraining and massive amounts of drugs to mask the pain of chronic and recurrent injuries. The racing industry is cruel from top to bottom, so don't support it and tell your friends and relatives not to support the industry in any way. Don't bet, don't go to tracks, and avoid parties that celebrate racing. This message is brought to you by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Check them out at aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. More with animals today, right after the break. Today's Animals Today Minute is about three of the largest birds on Earth. Did you know that the ostrich is the world's largest bird? It's true. The ostrich typically weighs between 140 pounds and 350 pounds, and the adults stand six to nine feet tall. Ostriches are also the fastest two-legged animal on land. They can run up to 60 miles per hour and sustain that pace for quite a while. Commensurate with their size, the eggs of ostriches are the largest of all bird eggs, weighing about three pounds each and measuring six inches long. Their huge eyes, about two inches across, are the largest of any land animal, but also larger than their own brains. They allow the detection of slight movements of potential predators from great distances. Their relatives are cassowaries, emus, kiwis, and rheas. The wandering albatross, or the snowy albatross, is the largest living flying bird. It has the largest wingspan of any bird, exceeding 11 feet in some individuals. 
They fly distances of up to 75,000 miles in a single year, adding up to 15 million miles over one's life. That's some serious mileage. An adult male weighs up to 25 pounds. The wandering albatross employs a flight technique called dynamic soaring to conserve calories and harness the wind's energy to soar beautifully above open waters. And they have a special gland located above their nasal passages, which allows them to regulate their body's salt balance by excreting a concentrated saline solution from it. Recently, their numbers have been rapidly declining, putting them on the red list for conservation status. The emperor penguin is the largest and heaviest species of penguin and is native to Antarctica. They weigh up to 100 pounds and stand 45 inches in height. Like all penguins, they are flightless. Their bodies are exquisitely hydrodynamic and they have strong flippers, both of which make them excellent swimmers. They can swim up to speeds of 12 miles per hour. Emperor penguins can also dive deeper than any other bird and they can hold their breath for more than 20 minutes. The emperor penguins share their labor when it comes to preparing for the young, with the male taking care of newly laid eggs. During that time, male penguins eat nothing for more than two months. The females search for food in the open oceans, collect it in their bellies, and regurgitate the swallowed food for the newly hatched chicks. Emperor penguins all look virtually identical, which makes individual recognition very difficult. To overcome this, emperor penguins have evolved different sounding voices and the ability to recognize the unique voices of their mates or chicks. And that's your Animals Today Minute for today. I am very pleased to welcome author Preston Cook because I have been enjoying immensely his new book titled American Eagle, A Visual History of Our National Emblem. Hello, Preston. Hello, Peter. I am really happy to be speaking about this with you and sharing it with our audience. And I want to describe what I have here in front of me. It's a large format, hardcover full color. It's just a treasure. It's produced and printed to the very highest standard. And uh, it's all about the American bald eagle as it relates to many elements and events in our country. And its genesis is your personal uh, collection. Tell us about your prodigious collecting, please. Well, I started collecting many years ago after seeing a movie called A Thousand Clowns. And there was one line in the movie, you can't have too many eagles. And this is back in 1965, 66. And I, um, I just grabbed that thing, those six words, really changed my life. I just started collecting eagle items. But a few months later, I was drafted into the military, and I was issued this dress uniform that had these beautiful brass buttons that were gold-plated, and um, they had eagles on them. So I cut those off two years later when I was discharged, and those still remain the first eagles and my favorite eagles in the collection. I wear them whenever I wear my blue blazer, and they've probably been sewn on half a dozen blue blazers oh, wow. in the last 50 years. And after, after I left the military, I went to college and didn't have a lot of money, but I started collecting postcards and pins and buttons and uh, letters and other items, stamps and other items. And then over the years, as I became a little more successful, I started buying more and more items. And and all of a sudden, I, I guess I got a little carried away, and I've got about 25,000 items in the collection now. And they're really based on about 60 different areas. So the book 
is um, is based on eight chapters. So I have a chapter on the military and a chapter on commerce, a, tach- uh, a chapter on the natural eagle, yeah. and one on entertainment and culture. And these are all ways that uh, the eagle was used in our society, in our history, in our culture um, over the over the past two hundred and thirty odd years. And what motivated putting this atlas together? Well, a couple of reasons um, for the book, and one is one is based on the museum. I, I really had an idea of a museum. There is no museum in America that is dedicated to the bald eagle, or the golden eagle for that matter, but of course the bald eagle is a symbol of America. It's on the Great Seal, which was established in 1782. So I I found out that that there were few exhibits over these 230-some-odd years, Uh, no museum dedicated to this wonderful great bird, this uh, only living symbol uh, in America. So I thought I would... um, collect enough, a sufficient amount, to create a museum. But then in order to sell a museum, to tell people about a museum, I had to have a way to show what the collection is. So I decided on a book and spent seven and a half years uh, writing this book. So it was a labor of love. I had a great time doing it. It was very challenging. It was very difficult at times, uh, but very rewarding also. I'm putting this book together. I really wanted to show the extent of the use of the eagle in our society. And and there's never been such a book written uh, that has been this extensively showing how the eagle is used and how people use it on a daily basis. So not only items that you would see in a museum or an art gallery, but this is based on the daily use of, of the eagle. You know, it could be on a dollar bill, or it could be on a postcard you receive, or it could be on a stamp or a coin. Uh, that's really what I wanted to show, the common use of the eagle, and then how it, how it represents us in all these different, different areas. Now, the museum you referred to, is that the National Eagle Center? Well, I spent some years, actually almost a decade, trying to determine where a museum should be. And I, I really felt that a museum should be... Uh, this really symbolic museum of the eagle should be adjacent to live birds. And I chose the National Eagle Center, which is in Wabasha, Minnesota, right on the Mississippi River. It's a beautiful little town, a historic town. And um, so uh, spending a couple of years negotiating with them on um, on the terms and conditions of my donation uh, we we came to terms several years ago, and so I've donated the entire collection um, and um, and an endowment for the creation of the museum. So the museum is coming along very nicely with Got an it. expansion. Uh, it's about an eighteen million dollar project. Uh, they have committed about ten million to date, uh, so we're well on our way. Uh, we have the real estate where we'll be restoring four historic buildings from the 1880s, 1890s that are adjacent to the existing 15,000-square-foot Eagle Center. So the Eagle Center has the live birds, which I was really looking for, and it's one of the few places in America where you can get up close to the birds and really watch them and and see them uh, feed and see them bathe and and, um, and 
almost interact with them. You can get pretty close. So it's it's exciting and it's um, it's a wonderful educational institution on its own. But the added dimension of a symbolic eagle museum, I think, will add greatly to to an existing successful organization. Now, I wanted to highlight an example or two of art from the book, back to the book. For instance, the uh, National Recovery Administration, NRA, you've included some really interesting art related to it. Uh, What was the NRA and how is its eagle depicted? Well, the the National Recovery Administration was created by President Roosevelt in 1933. Um, it, It encouraged collective bargaining. It encouraged... Um, fair wages, a minimum wage, and work hours. Um, it was uh, embraced by almost all businesses, and it was very successful. And uh, this uh, John Coiner came up with this Blue Eagle, what was called the Blue Eagle, and it represents industry and it represents energy. Um, and it was uh, just an iconic figure that was used just uh, just in, in store windows and in plaques and, and in every way possible, in flags and banners. And it was very successful until the Supreme Court, about a year later, uh, disbanded the organization and uh, put it out of business. However, there are, there's numerous examples, and I have dozens and dozens of examples of how the Blue Eagle was used uh, during those years. And in its talons... You've got, I think, a gear and then like lightning bolts. Yeah. Yeah. So the gear represents industry. Yeah. And then the lightning bolt uh, represents energy and, and uh, work and determination. So, um, so it had those, those symbolic uh, symbols with, uh, with the eagle. And, of course, the eagle allegorically representing America. Now, we almost drove the bald eagle into extinction. For our younger listeners who may not be familiar with this story, tell us briefly about the uh, heroine, Rachel Carson, please. Well, DDT really was probably the leading chemical that uh, impacted the bald eagle and a lot of other osprey and a lot of other birds and animals, including humans. Um, And it was sprayed just willy-nilly during the 50s. I mean, I remember running after trucks that had these huge fans behind them spraying DDT into the air and then into trees. Uh, So it was very effective in in curtailing mosquito activity, but it also impacted uh, fish in the waterways because it ended up in the waterways, and then it ended up in the fish, and then the eagles would eat the fish, and then this chemical would process through the eagle, and the eggs were very thin. They became very, very thin and brittle. And uh, they just uh, they were crushed by the eagle sitting on the eggs. So uh, it did tremendous damage um, to the eagle. So DTT was one of the reasons. But there was destruction of uh, forests was the other, and uh, shootings and electrocution by wires, by uh, high wires. Um, there was um, a lot of roadkill, inadvertently yeah. roadkill on eagles that uh, that were alongside the road. So there was a multitude of reasons, but DDT really was the major reason. This chemical in our system that um, that was overused. It was abused. It was overused. And then a fellow named Charles Broly, and he discovered this. And then when Silent Spring came out in early in 1962, Rachel Carson brought this up and brought up Charles Broly's studies 
And uh, 10 years later, 1972, DDT was banned. So that was a good thing that it was banned. Uh, however, it still is applied in certain areas, but it now is applied uh, in such a way that it doesn't harm the environment. So it's still effective. We've learned a lot about it, and um, and it, it is a helpful uh, deterrent to uh, to many of the diseases that are uh, created by mosquitoes. Yeah. It was a very close call for our eagles, and now they are thriving, aren't they? Well, it, it's a successful program. I mean, it, it's, it's a tremendous successful, successful program on bringing back uh, the bald eagle. It went from... The figures run from 100,000 to 500,000 in uh, 1,500, uh, which is a, t- a rough count in America, uh, down to 417 nesting pair in the yeah. lower 48. So uh, we, we almost lost our our symbol. Yeah. Uh, it was very close. Um, and now they are in every single state except Hawaii, but they were never uh, in Hawaii in the first place, but in all uh, 49 states they are now thriving so that it's a it's one of the more successful environmental uh, stories that we have and of course it's the symbol of america and it would have been ashamed to, to lose the symbol of america which which we came very close to doing in fact it was, one chapter of the audubon society started thinking that we may need a new symbol for america since they felt that um, we may not be able to um, to have the bald eagles anymore well, that's the first time I've heard that. That is really a sign of the desperation. We've been speaking with Preston Cook. The book is American Eagle, A Visual History of Our National Emblem. And I'm going to guess you can pick up one or more when you visit the National Eagle Center. It is available at the National Eagle Center online, Amazon, Barnes & Noble online. It's um, any bookstore in America could order the book. Yep. If, and I've even seen copies for sale over in England now in Europe. So so it is available. And um, and uh, thank you for your good remarks about the book, Peter. And, and hopefully people will buy it and enjoy it and appreciate uh, the transition of the natural eagle into the symbolic eagle, which is what this book shows. Thank you very much, Preston. Thank you, Peter. More with the show after this break. Hi, this is Lori. And it's Peter here. And make sure you check us out at AnimalsTodayRadio.com. AnimalsTodayRadio.com. And visit us on Facebook. And you can also subscribe on iTunes. Listen to us on iTunes. That's AnimalsTodayRadio.com. Thanks for listening. Listening to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. Now in its 11th year, Animals Today covers all the important animal issues you want to know about from around the world. Animals Today is a project of the nonprofit animal welfare organization advancing the interests of animals. Its mission is to improve the lives of animals and to encourage increased compassion and respect for all living beings. Check them out at AIanimals.org. That's AIanimals.org. Your donation will support the ongoing broadcast of Animals Today. Just visit AIanimals.org and click Support Us. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner, and thanks for listening. I want to now welcome back to the show Dr. Lori Marino of the Camella Center for Animal Advocacy. She and her co-author, Deborah Merskin, have just published a fascinating paper which appeared in the journal Animal Sentience titled Intelligence, Complexity, and Individuality in Sheep. Hey, Lori. 
Hi, thank you, Lori. It's great to be here. Lori, how does the typical person in North America think about sheep, about the domesticated sheep? Well, I think the best way to know that is to think about the phrases uh, we use in popular culture to describe sheep. Things like lambs to the slaughter, mindless, passive beings who really don't have a whole lot of originality or intelligence. Uh, and that's that's the general view of, of sheep, domesticated sheep. Yeah. People speak about how intelligent their dogs are or the high level of intelligence of pigs and crows. How intelligent are sheep and how do you go about figuring that out? Sheep are remarkably intelligent. What what Deb Merskin and I did for this paper is we combed the peer-reviewed scientific literature on sheep a cognition, as well as their emotions and their social complexity and personalities. And we put that all together into a review paper in Animal Sentience, as you said. And what we found was that, one, um, sheep are very sophisticated in some very surprising areas. And two, that a lot of the things that we know dogs and dolphins and chimpanzees and monkeys do, um, sheep can do as well. So we really have to have a complete shift in how we think about these animals. What is the emotional life of a sheep like? They are so-called prey animals. And so is fear a big part of their mental world? Yes. Uh, As a prey animal, they are very Uh, much aware of their surroundings, and fear is a big part of their emotional world, uh, especially when a ewe has a, a, a lamb and she needs to protect that baby. But what most people don't realize is that they have emotions that go beyond fear, that are much more complex than just I'm afraid. And those emotions are mixed with cognitive abilities. And so, you know, they are capable of anger. They're capable of contentment, of disgust, of despair. And so they really have a lot in common with us in terms of the kinds of emotions, the range of emotions that they experience. Do sheep play? Sheep play. Yes, they do. Um, Like all animals, they play mostly when they're kids, and uh, they gamble around. They play with each other. They they love to play. They show exuberance and joy when they play. Uh, That's something that's that's very very clear to see. The problem is is that uh, in terms of domesticated sheep, most people don't really have an opportunity to see them play because. They don't have an opportunity to play. And the best place to go to see domesticated sheep play is in a sanctuary. Talk about the mother-offspring relationship of sheep. The mother-offspring relationship is very, very strong. Um, How can anyone think otherwise when you really think about it? Uh, The mothers and the lambs have a powerful emotional connection, and they they naturally would stay with each other uh, for quite some time. Uh, but again, in the factory farms, they're separated from each other. And when that happens, the mother shows a lot of distress. And the lamb actually, if allowed to develop, 
develops mental problems as they get older. So, uh, you know, this is, it's not, uh, mothers do care about the fact that they are separated from their children, and the children need their mothers to actually uh, develop normally. Lori, one of the themes in your work and indeed in our field of animal advocacy is that when you look carefully at many species, you find that they are not a homogeneous group, but that they are comprised of individual beings with distinct personalities. How about with sheep? Well, sheep are certainly uh, animal personalities. They can be characters, just like you or I can be. Um, there, there have been studies of uh, how sheep respond to different situations and whether those responses are consistent over time. And if that's the case, then that's called a personality trait. And we know from studies like this that sheep have a number of personality traits that map pretty closely to some of the traits that we know of in humans. Things like, uh, well, obviously shyness and boldness are extremely interesting uh, because when we think about how we see sheep as all, you know, sort of shy, you know, that they all follow each other, that's absolutely not the case. The, the studies show that some of them are really quite bold and that they vary on that dimension. Would you please describe the social bonds and group behaviors of domestic sheep? Yes. Domestic sheep are herd animals, but it's really important to note that when you're looking out at a herd of sheep, um, that this is not just uh, a group of entities that are interchangeable. These, this is a, a little community where the sheep actually are placing themselves, spacing themselves where they want to be spaced. They want to be with their friends. So it's not so, you know, you can't just say, well, there's a sheep there and there's a sheep there. Each sheep wants to be uh, positioned where they can see the other sheep who are her friends. And personality plays a role in how the sheep move from pasture to pasture. So as you can see, there's a lot of complexity there. They are not just these homogeneous units who are chewing on grass. Right. Any takeaway ideas from your paper about sheep you want to share with us? The takeaway about sheep is that even as a scientist, getting into this literature, I can tell you that I was startled by the amount of evidence there is for their ability to think, to process information, to solve problems, to actually have a cognitively complex life, and that, you know, if you want to, to know more about who sheep are, please please see our paper or go to see sheep in a sanctuary, uh, because when they are allowed to live out their life, there's a lot of complexity there that we could certainly uh, relate to. Founder and executive director of Camella Center for Animal Advocacy, Lori Marino, that was very interesting. Thank you for that. Thank you so much. And thank you for tuning in to Animals Today. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals.